Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. Hey, everyone. Uh, I just want to extend my welcome to CAMS and say welcome to City Light this afternoon. It is great to have you here. Uh, my name is Jacob. If I haven't met you, hopefully I'll get a chance to do that later on today. And it's great to be together in January, taking this month out to think on prayer. If you weren't here last week, Gav um, started the series in a cracker way by looking at the Lord's Prayer. It was awesome uh, to kind of see this kind of overview of uh, what Jesus teaches us prayer should be like. I like to think of the Lord's Prayer as the food pyramid of prayers. So it kind of shows you what you need to have a kind of balanced prayer diet, a bit of honoring God for who he is, understanding him as a father, praying for the big things, God's purposes, as well as the small everyday things of our life. Uh, And as well, fitting into that, the idea of confessing our sin and asking for forgiveness uh, and being kept on on the path to holiness. Um, and so what we're going to be doing this week and the next couple of weeks is focusing in on some of the different areas of kind of what it means to have a balanced prayer diet. And hopefully you're finding this, uh, this helpful. Prayer is not something that I kind of pride myself in being really good at. I think actually as far as the things that you kind of associate with being a Christian go, uh, prayerfulness is something I find really hard and always have done. And so I found last week really helpful in, uh, in being challenged towards having a prayerful year. And as I prepared for today, um, again, I've been challenged anew of the importance of praying this type of prayer as part of our kind of prayer life. If, if the Lord's Prayer is like the food pyramid, I think confession is the celery of the prayer, the prayer world. You kind of know that you kind of, it's good to eat it, uh, but it's not that, uh, we don't do it uh, straight away a lot of the time. So we're going to be getting right into this psalm that Sam, uh, Cam read to us. But before we do that, um, I actually want to start Uh, this time by praying, asking that God would be helping us, knowing that uh, in this room we're going to have all kinds of things different going on in our lives and our minds and our thoughts, and that we um, we actually depend on him right now to speak to us. So let's start by praying together. 
Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we can be here. Uh, that that in and of itself is just something to be thankful for. We can be together. We can be in your presence, that you, you address us and speak to us. And that the things that you speak to us of are things of just glory and goodness and life. And that by knowing more of who you are, our lives make more sense. We have more joy and more fullness. And so we pray that as we look now at one particular psalm and seek to be challenged on the extent which our prayer lives may, may or may not match David's, uh, we pray that we would be challenged and convicted, but, but through that we would be comforted and refreshed by your word, that you would use this time to make us more prayerful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be getting straight into Psalm 51, which is a prayer of confession. But the psalm starts off by letting us know what's going on. We need to kind of understand this to make sense of the rest. The very beginning is up on the screen there. And if you do have, by the way, a phone with a Bible on it or a Bible in front of you, I'd encourage you to keep that open to Psalm 51. It's a great psalm. There's lots in it, and we'll be moving through quite a bit of it today. But the psalm begins, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Now this is a reference to a story in another part of the Bible called 2 Samuel, which is the account of King David and everything that he did. David was the chosen king of God's people, Israel. And this short reference is referring to the lowest point of his life. David, who was the king, was meant to go to war. He stayed back in his city with his people when all of his soldiers and the other men went out to fight, he saw a woman bathing on a rooftop, invited her into his home, slept with her, she became pregnant, and then in order to cover this up, he had her husband killed and then brought her into his home to live with him. And, and it, for a while, he thought he got away with it. This is the like 1000 BC equivalent of the teacher's pet for those following this kind of podcast. This, this just grave injustice, um, bold injustice carried out, thinking he's gotten away with it, and then what people have been warning as we've listened to the, the teacher's pet, I'm sure like 90% of you have been following it, is we want justice, we want exposure, we want confession. And so that's actually what happens to David. Nathan, who's mentioned there, the prophet goes to him and says, God knows what you did. You have not got away with this. It has been seen and God is furious. And David, upon being exposed for who he is, not being the perfect king that others thought he was, is cut to the heart. And this psalm is what he writes in response to this. And at its heart, what this psalm is, it's a prayer asking for mercy. That's what confession is. That's what a prayer of repentance is. And so as we go through this, what we're going to be looking at is this, um, is this kind of flow. It'll come up on the screen. We're going to look at the need for mercy, the God of mercy, and the fruit of mercy. As we watch David respond dependent on mercy after his situation. So firstly, the need for mercy the heart of David's prayer, the very center of it, is admitting that he is a person in need. I think admitting that we need help is something that uh, a lot of us struggle with. I think the stereotype goes that guys in particular struggle with asking for help, particularly like asking for directions because it reflects badly as a guy if you don't have a map of the whole world kind of programmed in your head like a GPS. But um, I know for me, I find I don't, I don't run to ask for help. Uh, even recently, I uh, me and Ryan, my brother-in-law who comes along here, we're at our, at our cousin-in-law's farm, uh, helping him out in his farm. I'm not a farmer at all. We said, how can we help? And he said to us, oh, look, what I need from you guys, it's just there's got 50 cows in this paddock. We need you to move this 50 cows out the paddock, down the road, round the corner. There's another paddock. Get him in there. And 
I grew up in Sydney. I don't know about moving cows, but rather than even asking for a tip, rather than asking for advice, I was like, got it. And it, the next few hours were just chaos. I don't know if you ever tried to move 50 cows. They're not smart. They're going everywhere, which way. We're on the road, and you're meant to kind of keep them to the side so obviously cars can go past, but they're just all over the place. I'm just dreading a truck coming over a hill and flattening a lot of them. We don't like asking for help. But on a deeper level, admitting that you need help can be really, really hard. So admitting you've got a problem with debt or gambling or an addiction can be one of the hardest things to do. And so people struggle for years with many of these things, trying to maintain things that are okay on the outside, even though they could get help if they went to the right place, just because they don't want that exposure. They don't want it to be known that they're not in control and they need help. Alcoholics Anonymous, which is obviously the program that's helped many people uh, through their alcoholism, is a 12-step program. You may have heard that. But the very first step of their program is to admit that you are powerless over alcohol and that your life has become unmanageable. Admitting that you're not in control, that there is something beyond you that you need, is the first step for change. So David acknowledges a need. He acknowledges that he needs mercy. Which is another way of saying he acknowledges that he has a problem with sin. Um, so if you look on the screen, we've got the, from verse um, 1 of this psalm, it begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now the words that David uses here like, are not ones that we throw around a whole lot in everyday conversation. Um, and so if you're someone who's kind of checking out church for the first time, you might look at that and just think they're kind of like religious words. Like we don't really talk about iniquity and sin and this kind of thing. So it might be helpful to understand what these are, to understand what the problem is that David is describing. And these three words, transgression, iniquity, and sin, are the three most common words the Bible used to describe really the same, the same problem. A transgression is this description of a breaking of trust. It's a breaking down of relationship. It's what you call it if you broke a deal that you made or cheated on your spouse, or, or stole from a co-business owner. This is the kind of language here that, that David's saying. He's got this transgression problem. He says he needs to be washed of his iniquity. Iniquity, the word we've got in English, is this translation of this Hebrew word that basically means kind of crookedness or bentness. It's the kind of image you'd have in your mind, that, you know, if you've seen like those YouTube videos of UFC fights where someone like kicks someone in the leg snaps, and what's meant to be straight is just thrown out. Um, it's this kind of language, but on a moral, on a moral level. There's this kind of grotesqueness to the way that we are wired inside that means that we're just off, we're kind of mangled. And the word translated sin, in, in most of the places you find it, is this word that literally means to miss the mark. It's this kind of imagery of kind of saying, you know, you're doing some archery, you're aiming for the target and you miss it. But obviously it's talking about this in a moral sense again. There is something we're meant to hit, something we're meant to hit as people, which the Bible tells us is honoring God, living his way, loving him with our whole heart, soul, and mind, and loving others as ourselves. And that is the target that we miss again and again and again. This is what sin is. This is what David is lamenting in himself. And the next three lines of this psalm show us just how bad this problem is. We can be prone to make this seem like less of a problem than it is, but David shows he understands the, the severity of, of what his need is. He shows that he understands that sin has affected every part of him. Verse 3 says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He says that his sin is ever before him. It's like everywhere he looks, no matter where he goes, his sin is there. It's like it's kind of written on the inside of his eyeballs. 
He's saying that he can't overlook it. And the Bible teaches that sin isn't something that just affects one little part of your life. It's not just there when you do one thing or don't do another thing, but sin affects everything. It affects the way you think, the way you feel, the way you relate, the desires you've got, the ambitions you've got, your decision-making process. Every single thing is affected by this problem of sin. It is everywhere. Then in verse 4, he shows that sin isn't just something going on with him, but it's an assault on God himself. Verse 4 says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's owning the reality that the direction of his sin is Godward primarily. And you might think, having known the context, that he's had someone killed, he's kind of ruined this girl's life. How can you say that that, that against God has he sinned? This guy's hurt people. But what David is acknowledging, he's not saying that he's done no wrong to others, but that every wrong against every person at the end of the day hurts God. And the reason for that is that God has made people in his image. God loves people and he's commanded us to love him and love others. And these things are connected. To sin against people is to sin against God. Um, you can imagine if you, if you have a child, you can imagine this for yourself, or you can imagine I've got a child. Hopefully it's not too big a stretch of the imagination. But imagine I've got a child. I'm walking down the street with, this, with him or her, and someone uh, comes along and just kicks my child. Um, pretty, pretty full on. Um, now, the response to that is just going to be, for my part, absolute fury. I'm just going to go absolutely ballistic, I would imagine, and just start kind of throwing punches. Now, you imagine, imagine if in that situation... Some guy comes, kicks my kid, and I go after him. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. What is your problem? I only kicked your kid, not you. Like, we know that that's kind of this crazy situation. That that's not how you respond to that. We understand instinctively, no, if you assault someone's child, it's an assault on them. They have every right to be angry. They have every right to be personally hurt. God is personally angry for every injustice and harm done to every person on this planet. So if we lie, it doesn't just hurt the person we lie to, it hurts God. If we cheat, it doesn't just disadvantage the person that we're cheating, but it, but it offends God. If you watch porn, it doesn't just weaken your relationships and affect your mind and, and harm those in the porn industry, it affects God. Gossiping doesn't just demean the person that you're talking bad about and, and cause the other people you're speaking to to be made more bitter and resentful. It affects God because you're talking about someone that he loves. We've done this, haven't we? Everyone here has talked about, I'm sure, about some, one of God's people in God's hearing. See, sin is an assault on God, which is why God is justified to sit in judgment over it. As David goes on, he even then shows that he understands the depth of his sin. That it is just so deeply in who he is. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. David acknowledges that part of being human means carrying this problem of sin with you. I think the common worldview at the moment is that people are inherently good and it's things that happen along the way that muck things up. That, that, that even in one situation that you might be able to have a perfect society where everyone is educated, where everyone has got all the resources they need and then all the bad things would go away. But the Christian worldview says, no, we've actually got this sin problem inside us. It's not society's fault. We've got a tendency towards evil, towards dishonoring God. Our hearts are the problem. 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a, a Russian intellectual um, a, in the time of Stalin, was one of the, the tens of millions of people put into forced labor camps, which saw millions and millions of Russians killed. And he writes this account in the book, The Gulag Archipelago. And, he's, and he, as he's writing this and recounting everything that he saw and witnessed, he's trying to answer the question, how did this happen? How did a, a, a progressive modern society kind of fall into this disarray? And he comes to the uncomfortable truth, which is that every single person that carried out the atrocities under Stalin, just like the people that obeyed the orders of Hitler, were ordinary men and women. That normal people do horrible things. And in speaking about this, he writes, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil, some, evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it was necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? We've got a heart problem. Um, that's, that's our issue. So how should we respond to this? Well, our heart should be broken, shouldn't it? it? We should confess it. There is really nothing we can do about this problem other than to say, yeah, it is a problem. It's to throw it out there and declare to God, yes, I've stuffed it. I've got a problem and the problem is me. That's what David does. He lays his sin out in front of him. He admits that the problem is great, his culpability is real, and he's guilty. But I just know that's not my response most of the time. I've got a number of other ways I respond to it. Um, the easiest one is to ignore it, just to kind of get on with life and, and act like it's not that big a deal, act like you know, I'm actually a pretty good guy most of the time. Or it's to justify it. Often, I often I think I work in my head that the way I think or feel or act makes sense because maybe my life is stressful or there's all these uh, complicated things going on that it makes sense to be the way that I am. Or if I'm harming another person, I often tell myself it's because they've wronged me or they've done something that's offended or slighted me. Of course I can talk bad about them or, or give them a taste of their own medicine. Or often it's, if it comes to greed, I'll just say that you know, me being stingy is just being responsible. Or I trivialize my lack of prayerfulness and devotion and say it's fine because I've been a Christian for a bunch of years and I've kind of, that's just what it looks like to be a Christian for a bunch of years. Or I just compare. I might say, yeah, I'm sinful, but I know that I'm not as sinful as those guys that cheat on their wives. I'm not as sinful as those guys that abuse kids. So like on the big scheme of things, I'm pretty good. And given the fact that this is, I think, how many of us will respond a lot of the time, we need the practice of stopping and confessing. We need to actually force ourselves into this zone of actually saying out loud or in our heads or by writing it down or whatever's going to be your, your method to acknowledge the fact that you've got a problem. And to do that in the presence of God and just kind of just tell yourself you've got a problem, but to lay it out to God say, God, I've stuffed up. I'm in need. I've sinned. And I think doing this has some obvious fruits. Um, some that, that are almost instant in the way that it, in the way that it res- makes you respond. If you do this, it will make you humble. If you begin your day by acknowledging the fact that you've, 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 you're the problem, that you've got a, a sinful, broken heart that's affected every part of your life, um, you will not be quick to judge others. You won't be quick to kind of puff yourself up and look down on people around you, but rather, even when you see people do things that are wrong, you'll, your first response will be to empathize with them to understand that you've got the same thing in you that's making them do what they do. You won't be judgmental. 
You won't feel entitled like you deserve every other person around you to serve you because you actually know you're a sinner. Confession makes you humble. It also makes you aware. It makes you aware that you're in a battle. And one of the greatest risks of sin is being blind to its presence. In the same way that cancer is it's most dangerous when it's not detected, when you don't even know it's there and you can't even seek treatment, you can't even try to get it out, so too sin, when you ignore it, can wreak the most havoc in your life. And so stopping regularly to take stock of your sinfulness will make you aware of what it is doing in your life. But I think the greatest effect of confession is that it grows us in our gratitude and our understanding of God. And for that, we need to understand our second point, the God of mercy. Confession isn't a game of self-deprecation and misery. It's not about being isolated or having low self-esteem or being self-pitying. Confession is a road that is meant to lead you to joy and confidence and peace and hope. And the only reason that that is possible is because of who God is. Because God is a God of mercy. And this psalm is full of evidence that David knows this reality. We're going to go back to verse 1. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. His prayer acknowledges that it's not going to be him that's getting him out of the problem, but only God can. Because he knows what God is like. He knows that God is a God of love. He knows that God is a God of mercy. And so as you read through the psalm again and again and again, you see these lines thrown in there like, like blot out my sins, hide your face from my sins, forgive me, make, give me a clean heart, make me new. David is asking these ridiculous requests because he knows that God is a God that can grant them. Asking people for things, I think, shows a lot about what you believe about them. When I was a kid, I had a, my best mate was called Nick, and Nick's dad, Keith, was who we called the Yes Man. Um, we would be 10, and so we'd want to go down to the local park and climb into the storm water drains and explore the underground world. But we knew that if we got busted doing that without permission, we'd get in so much trouble. So we asked permission, but we didn't ask my parents, didn't ask Nick's mum, we asked Keith, because Keith says yes. Um, so if you wanted money for Mr. Whippy, just wait till Keith gets home. Um, if you wanted uh, to shoot birds with a marble gun, just ask Keith. If you wanted to watch James Bond Goldeneye when you're eight years old, ask Keith. He just said yes to everything. And because we knew that Keith was a very chill dad, we could ask him things that he wouldn't dare ask any other adult. Um, ridiculous requests. Now, we need to not miss the fact that David is asking for something ridiculous. It is an audacious request that he's putting before God. And it's kind of easy to look for David's case and be like, yeah, that is kind of crazy. He killed someone. Um, That is audacious what he's saying. But we need to understand that for even us to go to God and ask for mercy, um, that's crazy. We have no right to do that. We've, We've done the wrong thing. We should be able to cop the consequences. But we need to understand that God is a God of forgiveness and mercy. David knows that God is a God who has shown mercy again and again and again to broken, sinful people. And the reason that we know that God is like this is because of the cross. We know that God is a God who grants mercy because he's already done what is needed for us to be forgiven. We can be confident to go to God and ask for mercy Not because of us, not because of what we've done, but because of Jesus. 
Because when Jesus died on the cross, that was God himself paying the price for every wrong thing we've done. Jesus' death wasn't an example. It wasn't an accident. It was God himself paying the sacrifice for what is needed for us to be forgiven. And this shows his heart towards us. Billy Graham, the famous preacher, has this line that I love. It'll come up on the screen. He says, God proved his love on the cross. When Christ hung and bled and died, it was God saying to the world, I love you. We're prone to forget this. God has already responded to our, our request for mercy. We've already received it. And so prayers of confession and repentance are means of applying these truths to ourselves daily. And this is going to shape our view of who God is. If your prayer life is mostly asking God for things, your view of God will be nothing more than a vending machine. But if your prayer life is filled with bringing to God your failures and receiving the gift of mercy, you will see him as the loving God who died for you. Our prayers are a means of reassuring ourselves of our forgiveness. Not that like each individual sin or bad thing we've got to like confess word by word and every day kind of get up to date from the sins of the day before, like it's some kind of transaction. But, but knowing that every sin was nailed on the cross with Jesus, there is no condemnation, there is no guilt. Reminding ourselves of the gospel is the most important daily habit we could establish. C.J. Mahaney, who, who writes a book called The Cross-Centered Life, says that the cross-centered life is made up of cross-centered days. Do you want the gospel to kind of fill your mind and affect every day of your life and, and how you relate to people and how you view yourself and form your identity and engage with the world? Well, you need to be reminded of it daily. We forget stuff. It's not that the more we confess our sins, the cleaner we get. But the more we confess our sins and to God, the more we can rejoice in what he has done for us. That every day is a new day and a new chance to speak with the God of mercy. The one to whom we can say, God, I've failed again, and not get a disappointed head shake or a list of conditions as to how he should fix the problem, but to be shown again, Jesus, the one who died for us. And the words, I love you. That's the God of mercy. But as also, as we look at David's prayer of repentance, we see that David also just prays for the fruits of mercy. He doesn't just ask for forgiveness, but he asks for change. His prayer shifts in the second half from not just undoing the sin, but making him a whole new type of person. The idea behind repentance isn't just to make you neutral, but it's to experience the fruits of mercy. The gospel isn't this idea of just going from kind of being in debt to breaking even. It's the idea of going from bankruptcy to riches. That there is not just making as if you've never sinned, but there's a whole new life to be experienced. And David understands that even this is from God. So read with me what's on the screen. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. 
David's prayer is that his life would be a life that honors the God who has shown him mercy. He asks for a clean heart, a, a heart that will operate differently from before, that won't just go to the same things again and again and again, but will actually start being a heart that leads to goodness rather than evil. He asks for joy, that the knowledge of his salvation will affect his feelings and emotions and overflow into how he feels day by day. He asks that what has been done for him will flow over into his words, both as he just praises God and responds to what God has done, but also in the way that he speaks to others. He asks that he would have the opportunity to help sinners return to God, not that he thinks that he's not a sinner and it's his job to help the sinners, but as a co-sinner, he wants to lead other people to this God of mercy. And, and he knows, though, that it's God that's going to do all this. The, saint, the God who saves is the God who sanctifies. The God who, who, who originally saved us from our sin is the one who's going to transform us into a new type of person. One who opens our lips to praise. We need to be asking God for this. This needs to be part of our prayer life. Again, it's going to help us realign with what we need to be doing each day, with the sort of person we want to be. So what do we do with this? Um, like, I, I often don't pray this way. I was saying at the start, um, this is, David's prayer is not a picture of my morning prayer life um, by, by any stretch. Um, and yet this week, simply because I've been preparing a sermon on it, my goal has been to read this psalm every morning and stop and, and pray in response to every single line of it. And it's been, and I even missed it yesterday. Um, so I've done it, done it five times this week. And it has been, on the days that I've done it, life-giving. Um, it has been a great reminder to start the day not with just all the kind of stresses and worries of the world, but just with a, a confidence that the biggest thing's sorted. A lot of things aren't sorted out in life, but the biggest thing, my own heart before God, has been sorted. And so my encouragement to you on the back of this is to simply practice it. Um, and I think the easiest suggestion I've gotten, the way to do it, is to start with this psalm. Have a bit of paper and a pen, and, and as you read it, kind of just even write down how this applies to you. Where do, where do you see yourself in this? And, and practice it and experience the, the joy that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven. And, and keep going with it. Um, I get frustrated with things I've got to do again and again and again. I just wish I could confess once, pray once, be kind of perfect and get on with life, but that's just not me. Um, I, I fall short on the same things again and again and again, and it's frustrating and it's discouraging. And so there will never be a day, never be a day when I don't need to know this truth. I don't need to know how God views me and be reminded of it and to walk into that day with confidence. So my hab- I'm hoping this habit will continue for me, and my encouragement will be just to give it a go this week. To, to bring your sin before God, and just rest in the knowledge that God is a God who loves you, and forgives you, and gives you a fresh start. Now, to finish off, I wish I asked Beck if she'll come and lead us in prayer. Um, do you have the, oh, she's got the microphone. No? Where's the mic cam? Hmm. Are you sure it's down here? Ah. <laughs> um, so Beck's going to lead us in prayer. And so um, my question would be, as, as Beck prays, don't just kind of tune out, don't just kind of wait for the next thing. 
but take this to be a time to actually bring your sins before God in prayer and experience the good news of the gospel. Thanks, Beck. Let's pray, guys. Father, as we come before you now as your children and acknowledge our brokenness and acknowledge our sin, the times that we have rebelled against you, Father, let our hearts know that we are often torn between honoring you and living the way we want to. And then we ask right now that you would forgive us for not trusting that your ways are greater than ours. We come before you broken, and we're sorry for doubting your goodness and faithfulness. Your word says that if we confess our sins and repent, that you are faithful and just to forgive us. And we thank you for making that possible by sending us Jesus to take our sins on the cross so that we may come to you freely. We are so grateful for your love and mercy and your undying faithfulness to us. We are so undeserving of your mercy, God, and yet you lavishly pour it out upon us. And for that, we praise you right now. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us the mind of Christ, renew us, change us, transform our hearts and our minds, that we might honor you with everything that we are. We humbly ask that you would make us more like you. In your name we pray. Amen.